Hello, and welcome to the Landis Cooperative Experience podcast featuring the bull bear banter. We all know that markets often behave in a way that can't easily be explained. The bull bear banter is our best effort to digest the noise of the marketplace. So thank you for joining us. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the markets. Hello, this is Tom Guinan, and I'd like to welcome you to the April 17th episode of the Bull Bear Banter. Cheyenne and I continue to record in separate locations, so I will recap the corn and soybean markets for the week. May corn futures gained two and a half on Friday, finishing at 3.22 and a quarter, losing nine and a half for the week. December corn also gained two and a half, ending at 3.43 and a half, and that's down about seven for the week. May soybean futures were down four and a quarter on Friday, ending at 8.32 and a half. That's down 31 since last Thursday's close. November beans lost three and a half on Friday to close at 8.51, down almost 25 cents from last week. This week continues to be as much about the energy sector as anything else impacting corn and soybean prices. After last week's announcement of an agreement to cut oil production in much of the world, the main response has been it won't be enough to offset the drop in demand. This Tuesday and Wednesday, the Texas Railroad Commission met to discuss curtailing oil production in that state, but at the end of their meeting, the message was that a vote was not taken and another meeting is scheduled next week to consider doing something. Another growing concern is the various issues impacting the livestock industry. One of the largest pork processing facilities in the country closed over the weekend as a large percentage of workers had been diagnosed with COVID-19. One of Canada's largest beef packing plants reduced production this week as well. A large egg processor in Minnesota closed this week. That plant manufactured liquid eggs for restaurants like McDonald's and others. We continue to hear of woes in the dairy industry with several stories across the U.S. of producers dumping milk. Along with all of that, we're hearing of avian flu in the southeastern part of the U.S. Many people initially thought that some of these production facilities closing would actually increase feed demand, and while that's true in the short term, the longer term implication is that feed demand will drop as producers continue to cull herds and flocks. So with that, let's move on to the bull bear factors. All right, Tom, so for corn, some bull factors I want to point out. Export inspections last week dropped to 40.5 million bushels, And while that's down about 10 million from the previous week, I'm keeping it in the bull column simply because it's still above the weekly mark we need in order to reach the USDA's estimate for the year. Cumulative exports for the year at 802 million bushels are down 36% from last year at this time, but they are gaining. For example, in early January, we were down 50% of the previous year at that time. Late last week, China's agricultural minister increased their estimate for corn imports from the U.S. to help with their compliance of the Phase 1 agreement. Previously, they were expecting 3 million metric tons and are now projecting 4 million. That's only an extra 40 million bushels, up from 120 million, but at this point, every bit helps. As far as corn bear factors, U.S. ethanol production dropped again last week, setting another new all-time low of 168 million gallons, down from 198 million the previous week, and that equals about 53% of the weekly high for this year that was set during the week that ended January 31st. This also represents a little more than 56 million bushels of corn consumed. In order to hit the USDA's most recent estimate of just over 5 billion bushels for ethanol, we will need to average closer to 91.5 million bushels per week. It's hard to imagine hitting that USDA estimate at this point. Even with this reduced production for the week, ethanol stocks increased to another record of 1.15 billion gallons, and that now reflects more than 50 days worth of production at this level. As mentioned earlier, the fallout in the livestock sector will lead to a reduction in feed demand. One example is a Delaware chicken company culling birds as they are dealing with a 50% decline in their workforce. 
They had already announced that they would be reducing egg sets and chicks placed, but that wouldn't make an impact for six weeks, so they decided to take the next step and cull some of their flocks. Speaking of poultry, the USDA confirmed the first case of high pathogen avian flu in commercial poultry in three years. The H7N3 bird flu was found in a turkey flock in South Carolina. On the bull side for soybeans, this week's NOPA report showed 181.4 million bushels crushed during March, while expectations were closer to 175 million. This is a new monthly record. In fact, four of their highest monthly crush numbers have occurred in the past six months. Also, Brazilian soybean harvest is 88% complete versus 85% on average. At this point, we just need them to finish up with harvest and get to a point where they stop flooding the export market with beans cheaper than the U.S. As far as the soybean bear factors, U.S. soybean export shipments last week increased to 16.2 million bushels. That was up from the previous week's 11 million bushels, but they continue to run below that 25 million plus bushels we need to see every week to hit the USDA's projection. Cumulative exports at 1.188 billion bushels are a little more than 5% ahead of last year at this time, but we've slowly and steadily been losing ground for quite some time. Net sales of U.S. soybeans last week fell by close to 300,000 metric tons on the previous week as purchasing by core buyers, including China, sank. The overall figure came in just shy of 245,000 metric tons, less than half of the 523,000 metric tons sold the previous week, missing the analysts' expectations of 350,000 metric tons to 550,000 metric tons. On our what to watch for in upcoming events, weather forecasts look pretty favorable the next week for field work. With everything that's been going on lately in the world and all of the negative news we've been experiencing for the past month or so, we know that all of you can't wait to get out in your fields. We hope everything works out well for you. Please take time to work safely this spring in every way you can. Also, the Texas Railroad Commission meets next Tuesday, the 21st. The hope is that they will use their authority to curtail oil production in Texas, but there are a lot of issues that they have to overcome in order to do that, so stay tuned. The next WASDE report will be released on May 12th. By that time, we'll also have a much better feel for planting progress in the U.S. and a feel for any acres being switched. On this week in history, 50 years ago was the Apollo 13 mission. Launched on April 11, 1970, and intended to land on the moon, that part of the mission was aborted two days into the mission due to an explosion in the oxygen tank. The entire crew returned to Earth on April 17th, with tens of millions of people watching the splashdown on TV. This week in Tom's Take, I'd like to follow up a little on my thoughts from last week. On Friday, WTI crude oil futures declined a couple of dollars to around $18 a barrel, the lowest price since 2002, but I do think that's a little misleading. This is for May futures, and Friday was the last day for that specific contract to trade, and there are always a lot of weird things that happen on that last day of trade for any futures contract. The June contract also traded a little lower for the day, down less than a dollar per barrel, but closer to $25, not $18. When I first saw the WTI early Friday morning, I also then looked at Brent crude, and it was trading a little higher. So I had to look a little closer and realize that Brent is and has been trading June futures as the lead month instead of May. It'll be a bit of a surprise to some people to wake up Monday morning and see that WTI crude is trading around $25, but is not up $7, as they were thinking it finished the week at $18. I think this is a good lesson for all of us. We need to make sure we're not comparing apples to oranges. We occasionally see the same thing in corn and soybean prices when we move our cash bids from following one futures month to the next month. We inevitably get questions about why the basis changed so dramatically overnight. We normally just walk through the math and talk about the cash price. Did that change a lot? Usually no. 
So if you're paying attention next week when we move from May futures to July futures on both corn and soybeans for our cash bids, you'll probably notice that same change. If you're just looking at basis levels, it will feel like you've lost something. You always have to check to see what futures month the basis is related to in order to make sense of it all. 30 or 35 under doesn't tell the whole story until you identify under what. Well, I think that wraps it up for this week. We'd like to just thank you for joining us for the Bull Bear Banter. If you'd like to contact us, you can always send a tweet to at Landis Co-op or drop an email to podcast at LandisCooperative.com. Our tagline is bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs just go to market. If you have any questions regarding grain marketing decisions, please reach out to your area grain marketing advisor. Thanks for listening, and we'll be with you next week. Mm-hmm.